Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, where we meet business, thought, and community leaders to discuss issues relevant to entrepreneurial growth. Joining us today is Michael Bungay-Stanier. Michael is senior partner of Box of Crayons, a company that helps organizations do less good work and more great work. He's written a number of books, the best known of which are Do More Great Work and the philanthropic project End Malaria. He was first Canadian Coach of the Year and a Rhodes Scholar. Michael's an internationally acclaimed professional keynote speaker, and he speaks at business and coaching conferences around the world. He's also a thinker in residence at Knowledge Blocks, a resource for readers of business books, and has been the creativity coach for David Allen's Getting Things Done online community. Welcome, Michael. Hey, Bill. Thank you for having me. It's great to be talking to you and to the folks that listen to this interview. So, hi. Michael, tell me, how did you get started in your career? Well, I have to confess, I didn't have some master plan. I certainly didn't know at the age of seven what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, So I spent quite a long time in university. I studied in Australia because I'm I'm Australian by birth. I uh, did a literature degree. I did a law degree that actually finished with me being sued for defamation by one of my law lecturers. So that kind of put a downer on the whole idea of becoming a lawyer. I won that scholarship that took me to England. And when I finally got out of uh, Oxford University and I didn't really know what to do or where to go, I, I fell in with a a new company then um, that was specialized in innovation and creativity. And when I joined it, it was, you know, one or two guys, the two partners and me. It's now become the world's largest independent innovation company. And it was a wonderful first uh, step into the world of work because they were all about, surely there's got to be a better way of doing work. Surely the, the standard experience of getting to join a big company and doing that thing, it's got to be better than that. So I spent a number of years with them, kind of as you do when you first start your career, learning how to work because you know, it's quite an adjustment from what you were doing beforehand and also learning what I liked and what I didn't like. I moved from innovation to the world of change management and helped big companies and small companies go through change and worked in mergers and acquisitions and leadership stuff. And at the time, I was now living in Boston. Uh, my wife is a huge Boston Bruins fan, so she was delighted. Um, I'm a big pizza fan, so getting to Pizzeria Regina and North End of uh, Boston, perfect. But after that, in about 2001, we moved up to Toronto, and uh, I set up Box of Crayons shortly after that. And as you said in the introduction, Box of Crayons is all about helping people and organizations do less good work and more great work. And we've kind of grown and started thriving since then. As you think about um, your first experience with the Innovation and Creativity Group, what were some of the lessons you learned that have stayed with you? One of the things that I've started to learn is around how elusive content is. And here's what I mean by that. We, We are all overwhelmed by the amount of content we have in our working lives. There's so much stuff coming at us, emails and papers and PowerPoint presentations and all of that. And we're overwhelmed by the amount of content, about the amount of information. And one of the jobs we have, whether we're in sales, whether we're in management, wherever we are, is about how do I take content, how do I take information and make it useful and accessible and practical? How do I turn information into wisdom? And one of the things that I learned uh, in working for the Innovation and Creativity Group was actually about uh, focus, 
in terms of how do I find the key things that I want to communicate and how do I create an experience that allows people to properly engage with that material. And you know, Bill, you know, so much of the way we receive our content is, you know, we sit in a meeting and somebody drones on with a PowerPoint or we scan stuff on, on the web as quickly as we can, not really taking it all in because we've all forgotten how to read in an extended way. We, all we can do is scan now. So one of the big things for me is understanding less is more. So how do I find what's essential? How do I curate the best of the content I want to share or have people engage with? And how do I create an experience so that when people are engaging in content that I've created and providing, they're actually more likely to understand it, more likely to do something with it, more likely to act upon it? Michael, that's a fascinating concept. Can you give me an example of a topic that you want leaders to really engage in and how you've structured and designed it differently so it's not just bullet points on a PowerPoint, but really an experiential engagement with that material. One of the, the key things that we offer the world in the helping managers and leaders do more great work is we run uh, programs. So we have our flagship program is called Coaching for Great Work, and it's all about offering managers and leaders, particularly time-crunched managers and leaders, practical ways to be more coach-like in the way that they manage people for good reasons. If you're more coach-like, you are better able to empower the people you're working with so they become more self-sufficient, so they're, they're less reliant on you and more able to act on their own. You can be more focused in terms of actually doing the work on the stuff that really matters rather than trying to solve all the problems. And you can have more impact in terms of getting your team to actually be focused and kind of moving in the right direction rather than them relying on you to be kind of pointing out how to do things all the time. So coaching is a really practical, useful skill. And in my experience, when anybody who's done any coach training, it's kind of a miserable experience, right? They teach you kind of an abstract model that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, they do a whole lot of theory, and actually doesn't seem really connected to the busy sense of overwhelm that most of us have in our working lives. That's right. I've sat in with managers who are looking at Venn diagrams and saying, now, how's this going to help me this week? Right, exactly. So you've got to think about um, standing in that person's shoes and going, okay, let's, let's, let's embrace reality here. Who is this person? What are they up against? And how do we find a way of bringing some useful stuff to them that could be actually act upon? So in our Coaching for Great Work program, for instance, um, and I'm not meaning to kind of you know, pitch the program. I just wanted to give it as an example of, of uh, condensing information to make it useful. We have a couple of principles, to um, three core principles to help them be more coach-like. Be lazy, be curious, and be often. So immediately you've got something that's interesting and engaging and intriguing, I hope, for people to go, well, wait a second, what do you mean be lazy? That doesn't seem to make sense. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm enthusiastic, I'm an A-type personality, I want to get stuff done. How does laziness help me? And what you find is curiosity is one way of engaging people in the content. So often when we're laying out content, what we do is we, we, there are no holes in there, there are no gaps in there for conversation and engagement. And being, being a little provocative is one way to create engagement. So that's part of it. Another example from that same program is that in the end, we're effectively teaching people to practice just seven good questions. 
and part of the art of that, and this comes from, uh, well, Einstein summed it up perfectly when he said this, things should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. And so part of the art is to try and make this idea about coaching realistic, provocative, and as simple as possible so that people can actually say, you know what, I can actually go away and I can use that tomorrow. In fact, some of the best moments I have is on this program. People come back from the lunch break and they go, you know, I tried out your, the, the best coaching question in the world, which, by the way, is, and what else? And you know what? It made a difference on just my phone call immediately. I've already got value from being on this program for you. Does, does that make sense? I mean, I kind of scattered around a bit for that one, but did, did it seem to make sense to you in terms of answering your question? You did. You helped us understand. You helped me understand that you give them principles. Be lazy, be curious, and the third one was be provocative. Yeah. Uh, be, be, be lazy, be curious, be often. So in the context of coaching, what people tend to think is that, um, you know, I have to put aside, you know, an hour every week or every two weeks or every month to do the coaching session with Bill because Bill, I'm leading Bill and managing Bill and I have to coach him. Whereas what we say is what you want is not a flash flood but a drip irrigation, not a big thing once a month but lots of small interventions as often as possible. That makes sense. It helps people orient around not knowing how to schedule it, not knowing how to structure their time, and right. looking for opportunities to provide that reinforcement and course correction. And also not trying to make a coaching conversation into something bigger and weirder and scarier than it actually is. I mean, coaching is just a way of actually having a useful conversation. And if we all go, I'm now doing the coaching with you, Bill, we all get a bit uptight about that. I'm uptight because I want to be the right type of coach and you're uptight because suddenly we're not having our normal conversation but you're being coached and everybody starts behaving a little oddly by making it by normalizing it and making it regular it doesn't become weird it just becomes useful so you're of the mind to not encourage executives to put on a baseball cap when they're coaching colleagues and and reports you know here's how i think about it (laughs) i think uh in some ways coaching is a little bit like getting kids to eat their spinach, right? Because when you tell a lot of people, I'm going to coach you, their reaction is actually one of kind of defensiveness. Like, I don't really want to be coached. I just want to be able to get on with my job. So if you're a smart parent, and I actually don't have kids of my own, but I'm just going off my brothers, and I've seen them parent my nieces and nephews. If you're a smart uh, parent, you don't just put a big lump of spinach on the side of their plate and go eat your spinach because most kids are going to go, you know what, I'm just, you know, we're going to have a conversation about this and you're going to lose because I'm not going to eat the spinach. What you do is you slip the spinach or the carrots or whatever it is into the spaghetti sauce so they don't even know that they're having their vegetables. And to me, this is how you might approach coaching. It's just to say this, look, I'm not, even going to, I'm not going to announce that this is a coaching moment. I'm not going to tell you I'm coaching you. I'm just going to start asking you some good questions. They're going to shift your perspective on stuff and make you more clear on what matters, more focused about how to go forward, and more kind of uh, self-sufficient so you can get it done yourself. There can be certainly times when um, a more formal coaching conversation is the appropriate thing to do. But for the, the most part, I would say you want to shift the balance to these everyday, short, focused conversations that are driven by curiosity rather than by you as the manager or leader providing the answers. I think you've touched on something that's very, very important. 
can you say more about what are some of the elements that distinguishes good versus great questions? Because listening to oh. you talk about this, great questions are what lead to effective conversations, which can be called coaching or not called coaching, but really yeah. they're useful conversations. And I think yeah. the part of good conversations are great questions. So how do you look at that from your framework? I've got some strong beliefs about what make up good questions. Some of these that people will have heard before, and they're kind of they're almost questions 101, which is you know, ask an open question rather than a closed question. A closed question tends to have the answer yes or no or maybe. Um, open questions forces them to actually articulate a little bit more. But I think we can go beyond that. For me, one of the things you want to be aware of is don't ask questions that are in fact just ad, ad, you know, disguised advice, you know, advice with a question mark on the end. So something like, have you thought of, is not really a question, that's just your advice. One of the beliefs I have is that almost all the powerful questions I know start with the word, what? You know, what's the challenge here for you? What's the most creative thing to do? What else could you do? You know, what is an extremely powerful way to start a question? When you ask a question that starts with why, what you tend to do is you tend to get people feeling potentially a little defensive and potentially giving you a whole lot of information that you don't actually need if you're not trying to solve the problem yourself. One of the big sh mind shifts, Bill, is that I'm not trying to find the answer, I'm trying to help them find the answer. If you're asking why questions, most often that's to serve you so that you can come up with the answer and it doesn't actually serve the person you're asking the question of. So I try and skip the why questions how questions certainly have their place, but how questions are very much about action. How are you going to do this? How might you approach this? How might this unfold? So it's all about that kind of more action-focused uh, piece. And one of the things that I see happen time and time and time again is people rush too quickly to solve the problem, and they haven't actually figured out what's at the heart of the problem. So one of the most powerful questions that people can take on right now and actually build into their management style is this question. What's the real challenge here for you? What's the real challenge here for you? And one of the things that you need to know as a manager or a leader is that helping people figure out the real challenge is in itself an extremely powerful intervention, an extremely powerful piece of management. And it saves you time and it saves them time from finding really brilliant solutions and putting a lot of time and effort and energy into solving the wrong problem, which is just, half, you know, it's, it's, it's ubiquitous in business. Way too much time and effort spent solving the wrong problems because not enough time was spent asking that basic question, so what's the real challenge here? Listening to you make those distinctions really brings out your emphasis on helping managers and leaders make people more self-directed, increase their capacity, improve their problem solving so that they need to intervene less and less often because they're actually building skills and awareness in the people who they're interacting with. Is that accurate? That's absolutely right. And the, the added bonus is you spend less time uh, having to help them by providing the answers for them so you can get on and do more of your own work now, obviously, part of your own work is being a great manager or a leader, but that's not the only thing you're doing. You've got your own thinking to do, your own projects to lead and to run. 
So part of this is around how do you become as efficient as possible in the way that you interact with people and powerful questions are often a far more efficient approach than, look, I think I've got an answer for you. See, that's a paradox for a lot of managers. Right. When you say this, they immediately protest and will say, well, gosh, going through all that seems to take so much more time. If I just gave them the answer or told them what to do, that would get the job done faster, and I'm really, really busy. How do yeah. you break through that limited viewpoint? Just because where they are in their work, that's where they're coming from. So part of it is certainly not to say, well, you're wrong. Um, part of it to say, that you, you're absolutely right. There are times when providing the answer just might be the smart, fastest thing to do. But here's what I w would say that I've noticed. Sometimes it takes longer to ask the questions because you think a coaching conversation has to take a long time. So you go, you know what, we're going to put aside an hour or half an hour to have this coaching conversation. And my take on it and, and the stand we take in our programs is unless you can coach somebody in 10 minutes or less, you don't have time to coach. So a big part of our focus is how do you coach in a fast, efficient, targeted way. So that's the starting point. The second point is this. Often when I see people providing the answer, not always, but often, what they're doing is they're providing the right answer to the wrong question. And so even though it's more efficient in the moment to get the person out of your office, they're back again because they haven't actually solved the real issue that's going on. So uh, part of it is around there's an illusion of efficiency, which is we're getting really good at doing the wrong things quickly. And you, know, you can see that that doesn't actually serve you in any kind of longer-term scheme, you know, longer-term being up to next week. And the third thing to say is there are absolutely times when, you know, when somebody says, hey, Bill, you know, I'm looking for the folder on, on Project X. Where's the folder? You know, the appropriate response isn't to say, well, tell me, how do you feel about that folder? You know, the appropriate response is, there's the folder, and, and to tell them what to do. So I'm not saying never give advice. I am saying that we are hardwired to give advice and provide solutions, and we do it too often. And asking questions can be very focused, very efficient, and it's a massively underutilized tool for most managers and most leaders. What I hear you talking about is really expanding their range of tools in their toolbox. So they're right. not always giving advice, and they're not, you're not saying, okay, jump out of that box into this box of always being the coach, but have some flexibility yeah. so that you could pick out the tool that's most appropriate for the context and person with whom you're dealing. You know, Daniel Goleman, who people may, the name people may recognize, he's one of the, he, he effectively popularized the whole idea of emotional intelligence. He wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review, uh, probably some, I mean, probably 10 years ago now, called, uh, I think it's called Six Leadership Styles. And he looked at six different uh, styles of leadership, as you'd guess, and coaching was one of them. And, and what he did is he kind of weighed up the pros and cons of each of these different leadership styles. And what he said was, look, each one of these styles has an appropriate time and an appropriate place to be, to be used, and each one of these styles has punishments and prizes. What he said is this, uh, two things to, to point to. First of all, great leaders know how to use all six styles and, and do so at the appropriate times. Typical leaders have two, maybe three styles that they tend to over-rely on. And the second thing he found was coaching 
whilst it was the style that had the most impact on uh, motivation and engagement and was, I think, the second or the third highest style in terms of getting stuff done, it was the least utilized of the management styles. So, you know, that data is 10 years old now, so you know, it may have shifted completely, but my instinct tells me that it probably is pretty much the same information now. And so, we're, just as you said, Bill, we're really looking at going, how do you expand the skills you have as a manager and leader, and how do we build that coaching muscle so it becomes a useful tool for you and those around you? What inspired you to write the book, uh, Do More Great Work? You know, there's a, there's a saying, Bill, inspiration is when your past suddenly makes sense. And the honest answer to that was I was on vacation with some friends, and we were up in upstate New York. We'd rented this, this cottage, which was, I mean, it was a bit of a disastrous cottage. I mean, it was very hot. There was no air conditioning. The whole cottage was kind of dilapidated and falling down. We were by a lake, but I'm Australian, so I'm used to swimming in the ocean with waves. And this lake was kind of this warm, shallow puddle, so I was kind of underwhelmed by that. The one, the one cool thing about this was this was actually the house that Einstein used to go to for his summer holidays. And the truth is, I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning, cause, partly because I was in the attic and it was super hot, and this idea for this book just came to me. And I went, you know what? I'd just been sent this piece of uh, paper by a friend of mine. It was, uh, it was a photocopy of a single page from a guy called Milton Glaser's book. Milton Glaser, famous graphic designer. He designed the I Love New York logo. And he sure. said at the start of this book, look, everything you do falls into basically three buckets, bad work, good work, and great work. And at that moment when I woke up in Einstein's cottage, I went, you know what, that's a model that I like and I think is really useful for people. All models are wrong, but some are useful. I think this is a wrong but useful model. And I know a range of different exercises that can help people find and start and sustain their quest to do more great work, more of the work that matters, more of the work that makes an impact. So the book itself, Do More Great Work, has 15 separate exercises in it that help you actually articulate where are you, what do you want, where might you be going, what might great work look like for you, what are strategies to keep focused on that great work, and how do you keep going when you want to give up. Michael, there are managers who are thinking that it is a, a tricky issue to deal with others, and oftentimes it's important to improve what work that you yourself as a manager and leader in an organization um, is doing. How can managers and leaders in organizations what are a couple of ways that they could use to get started doing not so much their good work, but their yeah. great work? The first is to understand that you have too much good work to ever get through and to dispel the illusion that if you just got a little more efficient and you just managed a, you know, a new way of handling your inbox, that somehow miraculously you'd be on top of everything. Good work, which you know, fundamentally is your job description, continually expands to fill the time you have to give it. That's why so many of us are working so long and we feel so overwhelmed. And getting more efficient at, it, at processing stuff isn't the answer. Getting clear about what you need to say yes to and what you need to say no to is the answer. That is difficult. It's hard to say no to people in an organizational life. But unless you get clear about where you need to focus, you're going to, you're going to struggle to ever get to any great work. One of the ways to help build that focus 
and build that boundaries is to declare what I would call a great work project. What lots of us try and do is we just try, we try and get through all our good work, all that kind of the stuff we have to tick off, and we say to ourselves, when I've got on top of that, then I'll get to my great work. And you know what? We never quite get on top of it. But if you declare a great work project, here is the thing that in three months or nine months or a year's time, that's what I want to be able to boast about. And that's where I'm going to put my time and my effort and my energy. That can be extremely powerful. A great work project has a start date. It has a finish date. It has an outcome. It has standards. And getting clear about this is my great work project means that you can articulate it to your boss and your boss's boss and you can articulate it to yourself and you can look at your calendar and say, am I giving time to this great work project? And for me, one of the key things that you can do is rather than start your day, as most of us do, by flipping open the laptop and starting to process our emails, which uses our precious thinking power stored in our conscious brain, our prefrontal cortex, if you can give yourself 10 minutes thinking time at the start of each day in which you start to articulate, here's the one or two things that I will do today to move my great work project on, that will make the most of your thinking power and it will create commitment and focus to actually get stuff done and move things forward on your great work project. So those are some very quick things that might be useful for some folks, Bill. Michael, you stay focused on track during your day even though you're inundated with all of the same demands right. that everyone else is. Are there any tricks or tips or techniques or tools that you've developed or adopted that help you, such as the first 10 minutes of every day focus on yeah. what your great work would be? What is it that you use on a regular basis? I recognize that I am myself a slippery character. So what's interesting about that is I keep setting up systems for myself and then I watch myself trying to hack my own systems. So I've got some good stories and I've got some good scars. But you know, one of the things that I use is I actually have two small desks in my office. I have one desk where my computer sits, and that's for me getting stuff done desk. That's the good work desk. And I have another desk, which is mostly clean and clear. And when I want to do thinking and I want to do great work, I actually shift and I actually physically move myself to this separate desk. And what happens is my body goes... When my body sits down at my computer desk, it says to itself, hey, this means you're up for processing stuff, for getting things done, and my body leads my brain in terms of how to make that work. When I move to the other desk or I move to a different space, my body goes, hey, this may be an opportunity for you to think, and it tells my brain this isn't about being efficient, this isn't about processing stuff. So using my environment to help me with that absolutely makes a difference. Then I have um, a number of little apps and programs on my computer. So I have one app called, I think it's called uh, Timeout, which actually uh, blocks my screen every uh, 25 minutes or so so that I actually um, stop and pause and it makes me think, what am I doing and is this actually the thing I should be doing? Um, and when I wrote the, uh, the first draft of my, my next book that will come out hopefully later this year, I used a little app called Focus Better, which sets a 25-minute period for me to work on. So I would work hard for 25 minutes and then take five minutes off. And there's good science behind that that says this is a really efficient way of doing focused work. So I'm forever looking for tools to try and stop me hacking my own behavior 
and getting back and checking email and doing all of that sort of stuff. Because I know if I'm relying on my self-will, that's not going to hack it because my self-will, as it does with everybody, is a, is a uh, kind of weak and easily used up force. So for me, it's all about setting up as many structures as possible that will allow me to behave in the way that I most want to behave. Michael, you've shared so many great tips with us and great perspectives about helping organizations and the leaders within them do more of their great work. Thank you. You've extracted and built upon your own lessons learned and helped people move from merely consuming information to really tapping into their wisdom, which can be a long-lasting source of benefit to both themselves as well as their, their organizations. And you've helped us think about qualities and characteristics of great questions versus good questions so that we can check ourselves and constantly refine and improve the way that we're communicating. Michael Bungay-Stanier, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Bill, thank you. You know, you've made it very easy for me. Your questions were spot on and really helped me kind of shine. So thanks again for your time.